you would, turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Leviticus chapter 16. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, it's in the front side, about the third book in. We're looking together, as John Paul said, at the, the Bible itself this year and the whole story of scripture and wanted to boil that down to these three numbers. I mentioned these to you last week and we're going to keep going over them so that you can hopefully get them in your mind and perhaps by God's grace even get them into your heart. The numbers three, four, five. Anybody remember what number three stands for? Hmm? Yes, the three loves. That's right. Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you didn't remember that because that means, you know, it justifies me reviewing these things. It makes me feel better. Three loves. Love God, love people, love place. This has been God's plan for his people from the beginning, from creation. Uh, This is what makes sense of our lives. It's what makes sense of the world. This is God's mission for humanity. Love him, love people, love the place where he has put us. Four-part story. You've heard that from John Paul. Five threads. Five threads. These threads are taken from Genesis chapter 3, and we see see them all the way through to Revelation 22. Five threads. Here's thread number one. God has always had a people. He is always building his church. He's always had a people, and he's always building his church. See it in Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation 22. Second, we see this. Evil is real, but it never gets the last word. See it in Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation 22. Evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Three, grace grace. From the beginning, we see the grace of God. That means that God initiates, God pursues, God saves. Grace. Four, Jesus did it. He did it. Jesus actually accomplishes something. He actually accomplished something. He won the victory. It has happened. That's so important to remember. That affects everything. And finally, this. Everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything. From Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible, everything is moving toward Jesus. That means your life. That means my life. That means everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything. Three, four, five. Three loves, four-part story, five threads. So as we look at Leviticus 16, and next week Leviticus 19, and other passages, you can think about those, th- those, three, those three numbers, 3, 4, and 5. I want to read this to you this morning from Leviticus 16. I'm going to read chapters, chapter 16, sorry, I'm fumbling this morning, verses 15 through 22, and then 32 through 34. Man, it's going to be rough, y'all. Hang in there. Can't get words out this morning. Maybe I should start drinking coffee. I don't know. I do feel awake, so I don't know what the problem is, but that's okay. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to pray, and I will pray especially for myself, and then that you all will hear what I'm trying to say. Leviticus 16, 15 to 22, this is God's word. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place, 
because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may, uh, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall, t- and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his, with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the, at, and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness." Look over in verse 32 through 34. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, let's pray. And let's believe that God's going to answer this prayer quick. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are God. And no matter how much I stumble and fumble and can't get words out, that you are the God of love and care. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak, and as always, I ask, Lord, that you would help all of us to hear a better message than the one that I'm going to fumble through, that we might understand Jesus, that we might know the weakness of who I am, but that your grace is strong and sufficient. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us good news to celebrate, hear, take in, live by again and again and again. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't you wish that you had a little bit more finality in your life? Really. If you were just to sit back and think just for a moment, don't you wish that you had a little bit more finality? I mean, when you think about your lives, think about how much of our lives just seems like a bunch of loose ends. Think about the relationships in your life that really haven't been completely restored. Think about, think about how much in your life is still unclear. Think about even the computers that we have, the operating, operating systems that they have, they constantly need updates, don't they? And sometimes those updates are so frustrating because they change the things that you just learned how to work. Think about your jobs. How much of your job, how much are you unsure about regarding your job? All of us wish that we had more finality, 
that there were, that there were so, we, we all wish that there were so many more things in our lives that was just completed, that was resolved, right? We all want more finality in our lives. So this morning, we're going to talk about finality. Looking at Leviticus 16, we're thinking about this idea of finality. And what I want to do is I want to show you a finality that means new life. Some of you are here this morning and maybe you need new life. I want to show that to you. I want to show you that the finality that's talked about here in Leviticus 16 is not only the finality that can bring you new life, it's the finality that can bring you renewal. Some of you here are tired and worn out or afraid and you need to be renewed. The finality we're going to talk about can bring you renewal. I want to talk to you about and show you a finality that can take your greatest failure and can overcome your greatest failure. Greatest failures. I want to show you a finality that can give you confidence if you need it. And a finality that if you're humble and real, I mean, excuse me, if you're arrogant and self-sufficient and think that you're the center of everything and you can do everything, it'll bring you humility. I want to show you a finality that can help us think about life as a journey rather than an algorithm. If I just plug in the right things here and there, I'll get the result that I want. And I want to use God to do that. I want to show you a finality that helps you look at your life as a journey, not an algorithm. I want to show you a finality that can give you confidence and joy, that can even locate your anger in the proper place. It can help you live as someone who loves mercy, someone who is full of grace and wants to be gracious. That's the kind of finality I want to show you this morning in Leviticus 16. So what we're going to do is look at what's going on. That's the first point. And the second is going to be, so what? Thinking about finality together, first idea we're going to look at is what is going on in this chapter. And then the so what. So let's dive in. What's going on with this chapter? Well, let's make sure we get our bearings. What's going on? First of all, we're going to get our bearings. We're going to make sure and get acclimated of what's happening. After God brought his people out of Egypt, after he brought them out, it meant that there was significant change going on in the lives of God's people. It meant that God's people were growing in their understanding of God's presence. It meant that once God brought them out of Egypt, he was growing them to help them understand that he was always present. So God was continuing to reveal himself in clearer ways and in deeper ways. So he had them build a tabernacle because he wanted them to have this gigantic tent thing that was a symbol of his presence with them. So they come out of Egypt God gives them the law, and then he gives them the instructions on how to build this big tent, which we call a tabernacle, and he says, this is to symbolize my presence with you. And oh, by the way, it was in the center of their existence. It was to be in the center of their lives, so that no matter where they were going, what they were doing, they were to be thinking about the centrality of God's presence with them. So they were growing in their understanding. They were growing and deepening in what it meant that God was with them all the time. 
God even appointed these men that we might call pastors, or as it says in Leviticus 16, priests that kind of, if you will, manned the tabernacle. And if you want to connect this even deeper to Exodus, then you can think about it this way. Remember when John Paul talked about the Passover? Remember that a few weeks ago? Just think about it this way. The Passover moved indoors. Okay? That's what's happening. The Passover moved indoors. So God appointed men to help run the tabernacle. And all kinds of people were involved in helping, but this passage focuses in on the priests, the the pastors. And this was their job. They were supposed to explain the word of God to people. They were supposed to live out the word of God before the people. They were supposed to help the people focus on the good news that God was with them and that God cared for them and provided for them. It was their job to not only represent the people to God, but to help the people understand God's word, to help them understand who he was and what God wanted. Their jobs, in essence, were to nourish the soul. Their job was to cause people to understand more and more about their soul and what it meant to live with God. Now, this leads to attention. And the tension is this, if God is present with us, and if God is holy, and if God is good, and he is loving, how in the world can a holy God, a loving God, a good God, how in the world can he be present with me? How in the world can God be holy and live in the presence of a sinful people, people that are selfish, People that are just concerned about themselves. How can a holy God live with people like you and me? That's a tension. And the way that that is answered is this. Atonement. You want to know how a holy God that's all loving, that is perfect in every conceivable way, can dwell with you? Can dwell with someone like me? Can live in the midst of us? Atonement. Atonement. The reason why I read so many of the verses this morning at the end of the chapter is because of the repetition of the word atonement. It's there 16 plus times in this chapter. 16 times. How can a holy God live with people like you and me? Atonement. So here's what happened on the day of atonement. This whole chapter is about the day of atonement. If you look back in this chapter, what you'll find is the first 10 verses kind of give you an overview of what's supposed to happen on the Day of Atonement. And then verses 11 through 28 say the exact same thing again, just with greater detail and more detail. And then everything is locked down, if you will, in verses 29 and following, reiterating the idea of atonement, reiterating the idea that we need to think about atonement all the time, and that this was a special day in which God's people understood the reality of who God was and who they were. So here's what happened on the Day of Atonement. Here's what happened. Here's what this chapter is laying out. I'll try to get this to you quickly and lay it out in bullet point form. Aaron was the priest. He was a pastor that was talked about here in this passage. This is what he had to do. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron needed to bathe to wash himself clean. So think think with me, if you would, see if you can visualize this, okay? See if you can visualize these things that are going on. 
excuse me, Aaron washed himself, cleansed himself, and then he put on linen garments, a linen undershirt, a linen overshirt, he put a turban on his head, he dressed himself in pure linen. And then, after he had put on those priestly garments, what he did is he offered a bull as an offering and a sacrifice for his own sin and for the sins of his family. Look at verse 6. He had to make this sacrifice not only for himself, but also for all those in his house. And then after that, after he washed, put on priestly garments, and after he made atonement for his own self and for his own family, he then would take some incense and he would go inside the tabernacle and inside to the holy place. And what he would do is he would take that incense behind the veil and he would if you will, spread this incense out on this special seat, the mercy seat. And what he would do after that is that he would sprinkle the blood of a bull that he had killed on the mercy seat. He would sprinkle the blood on it where God was present. Then after that, he would take a goat and he would offer the blood of the goat on that seat. He would sprinkle the blood of that goat on the mercy seat where God was present. And then... He would do that for all of the people. Having done that for himself, he would then offer that blood for God's people, all of them, the whole congregation, the whole people. And then he would come out from behind the veil, and there was still one goat that was alive. See if you can visualize this. And after coming out of the holy place, he would then put his hands on the goat And he would put all the sins of the people on that goat, and then that goat would be set free. And there was someone who was actually designated, who is, as the text says, at the ready. Did you notice that? He was at the ready. The trigger for him was whenever Aaron would come out and put his hands on the goat, this guy would come up and basically chase that goat out of the camp so that goat would run away and we wouldn't see him anymore. And then after that, what happened? is that Aaron would then have to wash again, take off the priestly garments, make sure everything that they used, all the pieces were burned up, everything was done away with, almost like start to finish, chop, chip, chop, no, ship shop, everything's done, clean, wrapped up, put my old clothes back on, done. And he would come out, and the people would celebrate, and the text doesn't say this here, but he would offer the benediction and pronounce God's blessing on his people. That's what happened. That's what's going on in this passage. It's very clear that God lays out this is what's supposed to happen on this day. This is what's supposed to go on. Now we come to this. So what? What in the world does this mean for us? Why in the world is this important? And the takeaway is not you need to go buy a bunch of bulls and a bunch of rams and goats and you need to, you know, start killing things, sprinkling blood. That's, by the way, my job's not changing. I'm not having to do that either. So what in the world does this mean? Why, does this, why are we looking at this? Why does this have any relevance for us at all? Well, we're going to start with this, so what? It's going to be somewhat of a sidebar. I want you to understand something that's really, really important if you're going to get the Old Testament. And if you're going to understand how God deals with people in the Old Testament. We'll call this a sidebar. Although it is good And although it is helpful when you read the Old Testament to distinguish between sacrificial laws and what we might call the Ten Commandments or moral laws, the ones that we looked at last week, although it's really, really helpful to distinguish between them, 
I want you to hear this. Hear this. They actually work together. They work together. So when, not, when God gives the law, he gives the sacrificial laws and what we might call the moral laws or the Ten Commandments and how those are played out in the people's lives, in his people's lives. But they work together. The Ten Commandments are always connected to the sacrifices. And the sacrifices are always connected to the Ten Commandments. They always lead to the Ten Commandments. You see, if you understand that, if we understand that, then what that means is this. Believers in the Old Testament had the rhythm of life in which they were repenting and believing and obeying. Doesn't it sound like us? When you understand that these laws work together, what you understand is that they were supposed to live their lives find, uh, uh, going to see the sacrifices and understanding what the sacrifice meant, which would lead them to obey. And when they understood the Ten Commandments, it drove them back because they understood they couldn't obey and they needed something to die for them because just raw obedience could never get them to God. They could never obey enough. Just like us, we can never obey enough. And if we don't understand how the laws fit together, even though they're distinguishable and work together, we'll never understand, we'll never see how those that, that were living before Christ actually live the same kind of life that we live, in which they had the rhythm of repenting and believing, of believing and obeying, in which the commandments drove them to the sacrifice, and the sacrifice drove them to the commandments, just like our lives. Now, that's a sidebar. Here's the so what. This whole chapter is an acted-out gospel. It's an acted out gospel. One of my favorite theologians has said that the Old Testament is the stage in which all of the New Testament doctrines are played out. So whenever you read the Old Testament, what you see is the gospel acted out. That's what's happening here in Leviticus 16. Here's the great assumption of this chapter, that there is a problem between God and us. The assumption is that there's a problem between a holy God and a people. The problem is God's holy and we're not. Is that God's holy and good and loving and we're selfish and self-centered and self-serving. And if you're here this morning and you think to yourself, you know, I got a lot of questions for God. Great. Ask them. Love to talk with you about it. So would John Paul. So would the elders. Bring them. Bring your questions to God. But just realize this. It is possible God's got questions for you too. That, that's possible. You see, there's a, there's a problem. God's holy and we're not. That's the great assumption of this entire chapter. We're sinful. We are sinful people. We are bent on self. And because of this, because of this, there needs to be a sacrifice. Because of this, a sacrifice is made. And think through this with me. The priest has to offer the sacrifice for himself first. I want you to understand, I am not more holy than you are. The struggles that you have are the struggles that I have. 
Do you understand this? Even in the Old Testament, the priests, the ones that people thought were holy, they weren't any more holy than anyone else. They needed the sacrifice just like everyone else. And God is saying, of course that's true. You have to offer a sacrifice for yourself, Aaron, and for your whole family. And then you are able to offer sacrifice for the people, for all the people, for the entire congregation. The sacrifice was made for all of God's people. The animal was the representation. The animal was a representation for Aaron and his family, for the entire congregation, for everything and everyone. And the result of all this is forgiveness. This is how forgiveness is played out. Remember, this is gospel acted out. Here's how forgiveness is played out. When Aaron comes out from the holy place and puts his hands on the goat, it says that he puts all the sins, all the iniquities of all the people on the goat. And that guy that's standing at the ready, and he comes up and scares the goat off, you understand what's happening, right? The people are visually watching the reality that all of their sins are placed on the goat because a sacrifice has been made, and then they get to watch their, sin, watch, the, watch their sins that have been put on this goat run out of the camp, out of the place, never to be found, and never to return. Isn't that incredible? This is a lived out, acted out gospel. Wouldn't it be nice if we saw our sins that way in such a visual sense? This is why John Paul uses that assurance of pardon over and over and over and over. That God is loving and gracious and as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth, God has removed our sins from, from us. That is the Old Testament language drawing from this imagery to say this is how much God has forgiven you. You, consider it, you can consider it gone and never to return. That God has forgiven you so much that you can literally think that your sins are no more. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's the result, is that forgiveness is real. Forgiveness is real. But here's the thing, and I tread this lightly and carefully, but it needs to be said. We all have to understand that as glorious as Leviticus 16 is, and, and let me explain this, please, as I say it, it's insufficient. Now hear me, please. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Let's go deeper. God's people were not forgiven because they obeyed and offered the sacrifice, their obedience didn't merit their salvation. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But the blood of bulls and goats pointed to the one who could. So if you were alive before the coming of Christ, what you got to see is everything that Christ would come and do. So they were not saved before God. They weren't forgiven before God because they obeyed this law and did it. They believed that these laws were pointing to Christ and illustrating and showing Jesus, the coming Messiah, in ever clearer ways. 
because Jesus had to come. This is just prefiguring him in types and in shadows. And we need the reality. And so when you read the scriptures from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, realize that what Jesus has done in his coming and his death and his resurrection doesn't replace the Old Testament. It fulfills it. So the priesthood, Aaron and his family in Levitical line, they were priests and Jesus was the priest. They were all pointing to him. He didn't do away with it. He's the fulfillment of it. The land that God gave to his people was just a small little picture of the fact and the reality that Jesus owns everything and the whole earth is the Lord's. He didn't replace this. He fulfills it. Even these sacrifices, they were all pointing us to Christ and that Christ would fulfill everything that was pictured here for us. You see, everything here is moving toward Jesus. Everything is moving toward Jesus. And the source of all of this, we got the assumption, and then because of that, we have the sacrifice, and the result of that is forgiveness, and it's insufficient insofar in and of itself, but it's pointing us to Jesus. But I want you to see the source of all of this, the source of the Day of Atonement, the source of the sacrifice, the source of all of this is the love of God. Take that in. If you have been taught that the God of the Old Testament is bad and the God of the New Testament is good and loving, I want to challenge you. Work really hard to get rid of that. Work really, really hard to get rid of that thinking. This, the source of everything here, is God the Father. God the Father is providing all of this in love. The God of the Old Testament is a God of love, and he is the one that is directing all of this to happen. All of it. And to go even further, as glorious as, seeing, as it is to see Jesus in Leviticus 16 and his final sacrifice that pays for all of our sins and changes the totality of our lives, as much as we know instinctively that that cost Jesus something, please know that the atonement also cost the Father. He didn't spare his own son. That's costly. He gave his only son. That's costly. He was invested and he loves his people. He loves his people. And I know no greater illustration of this than something that's happened in my own life. And I've spared you this illustration for a while, but I can't keep it from you anymore. So I'll try to get through it. In May of 2006, there were a lot of fires in the state of Florida. And there was a young man Sorry, you're going to have to give me some time here. There was a young man who was, this is why I haven't been able to. I may have to skip this and just hold it for another day. I don't know. Just give me a second. There was a young man who was badly burned. Head to toe. 
And he was on life support for a long time. And he was 17 years old. And there was someone else at the time living in New York. And he needed a heart because he was going to die. That was my dad. And this young man in Florida who was 17, he got a match from my dad, which of course ended up being found out after he died. But the point I want to make to you is this. That the father of that young man had to make the decision to give up his son so that my dad could live. It cost him something. And he loved his son. And his son was so bad off that he wasn't going to live. But he knew that if he gave up his son, then someone like my dad would live. Beloved, that's the gospel. That the father gave his son. He didn't spare him so that someone physically like my dad and spiritually like us so that we would live so that we would have a new heart, so that we would have new life. You see, what Jesus has done brings us finality. The atonement is finality. Finality is achieved through the work of Jesus in the atonement. What Christ has done means that we have new life. It means that you can come to worship and hear about Jesus and be renewed. It means that because of what Christ has done, you can have confidence in your life. It means if you are self-sufficient and arrogant and full of yourself, the atonement says, you're not as great as you think you are. Somebody had to die for you. It means that you don't have to live your life thinking that if I just get the algorithm right, that I'm going to get everything that I want, the results that I want. It means that if you see that Jesus has paid the atonement for you, that you can live your life as a journey, not as trying to get the algorithm right. It means that you can have joy in your life. It means that even your anger can be located in the right place and you can be frustrated at the right things and angry at the right things. And it means that you can live a life of love. That you can live a life of grace because someone has died in your place. And because of that, you can see the love of the Father. When Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. And it meant finality that we all want and need. Beloved, that's good news. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for how you reveal yourself in the Old Testament. And that you are the point of the scriptures. That through you, we really can see all that the Old Testament was talking about and explaining and working out. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to want to find Jesus in the Old Testament. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive us for the times when we thought that in the Old Testament you weren't loving. Would you help us see that you are? Would you help us understand that you have provided all of this for us in Jesus? And you've been so 
patient with us and bringing us along and revealing to us more and more of yourself, growing our understanding, deepening, deepening our understanding of who you are. So help us to hear the good news this morning and believe it's true and find forgiveness and power. For your glory we pray, amen.